Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In Romans chapter 4, Paul clearly revealed that God's righteousness does not come from obedience to the law of Moses. Rather, God gave the law to help us understand just how far short of his standards we fall and how much we need his mercy. In the Old Testament, God established a system of animal sacrifices in which man could be temporarily reconciled to God through the blood of an innocent substitute. However, Scripture makes it clear that the blood of bulls and goats could offer no permanent solution to sin. It was never intended to. And so the animal sacrifices had to be offered again and again year after year. Then, just at the right time, God sent Jesus, his own son, to die for us as a sacrifice of atonement, and the need for all of those temporary sacrifices was ended. You see, Christ's blood has permanently dealt with our sin. When we believe in Jesus and ask for his forgiveness and yield ourselves to him, our sin is not merely covered over for another year as in the Old Testament sacrifices. It is completely taken away. And God says that he will never count our sin against us. Christ's sacrifice was ordained before the foundation of the world. It had always been God's plan to send him as our substitute. The purpose of the Old Testament sacrificial system was really just to help us understand God's remedy for sin and how that was to be fulfilled in Jesus. Paul wanted the church in Rome to understand that their relationship with God depended entirely on faith in the completed work of Jesus on the cross and their willingness to believe that God would be true to his promises because of grace. Many Jews believed that their righteousness in God's sight was linked to their race as Abraham's descendants, to the fact that they were circumcised and to the fact that they had the law of Moses. And because of that, they thought that the only way a Gentile could be really accepted by God was if they became a Jew. Paul was driving home the point that the only thing that really matters to God is faith. In truth, relationship with God has depended on faith from the very beginning, and that's why he'd reminded them of the Jewish patriarch Abraham, stating that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was righteous in God's eyes because of his belief and because he took God at his word. Yes, Abraham had obeyed God's commands to him, but his obedience was really born out of his belief that God would keep his promises to him. Paul reminded them that Abraham had obeyed God out of faith long before the ritual of circumcision was ever given to him. In fact, Paul revealed that circumcision itself was supposed to be an outward sign of the faith that already existed in Abraham's heart. 
So the Jews had to rethink what they thought about the law and about circumcision, but they also had to rethink about what they believed about Abraham as their father. For though he was their physical ancestor, the scripture reveals Abraham to be the father of all who believe, not just those who came from his blood. As far as God is concerned, those who have faith in God's promises are the real children of Abraham, and that relationship has nothing to do with race, circumcision, or the law of Moses. Romans 4 brings the first part of Paul's argument to a close. In chapters 1 through 4, he has explained that we're all sinners, but also that we're all invited to receive the justification God has freely provided in Christ. The word therefore in chapter 5 verse 1 indicates that he's going to take everything he's said so far and tell us what it means. And he begins by speaking of the great peace and joy that faith brings. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The first thing he mentions is peace with God. The law could not give mankind peace with God and it could not reconcile us to him or give us access into his presence. But now, by faith in Christ's blood as being sufficient payment for our sin, we have peace with God and we have been ushered into God the Father's gracious presence. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 declares that though we were once exiles, through Christ we may approach God's throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we will receive mercy from him and grace to help us in our time of need. Since the fall of Adam, mankind has been separated from God and under his wrath because of our sin. But because Jesus settled our debt and reconciled us to the Father by faith, we now stand in God's grace. Grace is a theological word for the undeserved favor of God. I like to think of it as grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. We are the recipients of his grace, not because we've done anything to merit his kindness, but rather because of his great love for us made known in Jesus Christ. Because of the blood of Jesus, we are now anchored in the Father's presence, and instead of condemnation, judgment, and vengeance, we stand in his incredible undeserved kindness, and our hearts are filled with a deep joy and an over overwhelming hope in God that cannot be shaken, no matter what happens. But this doesn't necessarily mean that life will get easier than it used to be. Paul confirms this very thing in verse 3. He writes, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Paul acknowledges that we will suffer 
even after we trust in Christ. In fact, all who claim Jesus as their Lord can expect to suffer for their faith. But even in that, there is encouragement. All of the hardships, sorrows and bitter disappointments of life are not meaningless tragedies to the Christian at all, for they can result in great good when we respond to them in the right way. To that end, though God could prevent human suffering, often he does not. And this isn't because he's unreliable or indifferent to our unhappiness, but rather because he knows that the trials of life can develop our perseverance and our character. When we respond with faith, patience and trust in God's goodness, he transforms the suffering into something else entirely, into something that ends in hope. And when our hope is in God himself, it cannot be disappointed. Our hope is ultimately in the love of God. And Paul says that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Up to this point in his letter, Paul has explained justification from the standpoint of God's wrath and the necessity of dealing with sin. Now, however, he begins to look at justification from the standpoint of God's love. God justifies us because he loves us. Verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need not doubt God's love for us, no matter what comes our way in life, for he has provided the greatest demonstration of love possible. He sent his own son to die and take the punishment for our sins upon himself. Paul emphasizes here that though it is possible, it is a rare instance when anyone is willing to die for another human being, even a good or righteous one. Jesus said that there was no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. But the real miracle and the unquestionable proof of God's love for us is that Jesus Christ died for us when we were neither righteous nor good nor his friends. He willingly died for us while we were still sinners, when we were alienated from God. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul goes on to show how greatly things have changed for us because of Christ. By his shed blood we have been justified. In other words, our relationship with the Father has been restored. Remember our definition of justification? Because I belong to Christ, God sees me just as if I'd never sinned. 
And because of this new relationship with him, those who have trusted in Jesus will be saved from God's wrath at the time of judgment. For if Christ's death is able to reconcile God's enemies with the Father, how much more, having been reconciled, shall those who believe in him be saved through Christ's resurrection? Death and sin have no hold on us, for we are created anew in Christ. And because we've been born again and his Holy Spirit lives within us, we are now able to live a new life, a life that is like his. This process of transformation in which we become more like Christ, is called sanctification. It begins when we entrust ourselves to him and it will continue until the day that we stand before him and see him face to face. Paul emphasized that the Christian life is a joyful life, not only because of what awaits us in heaven, but also because of what we know in the present. Reconciliation with the Father through the blood of Jesus means that a person who repents is no longer at war with God. Consequently, we need no longer be terrified of him as a distant, righteous, sin-punishing God, but rather, as a member of God's own family, we can now approach him as our loving Father. In the next section of his letter, Paul sets up a contrast between two men and the two results of their lives, the man Adam and the man Jesus Christ. He begins with Adam in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through the one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who was a pattern of the one to come. This is surely a complicated passage and we need some background if it's going to make sense. The first man, Adam, had intimate fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. God's only requirement was that Adam and his wife obey him by not eating from a certain tree in the middle of the garden. Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve were led astray by the crafty lies of Satan speaking in the form of a serpent. They abandoned the truth of God for those lies and so sinned. In other words, they broke God's commandment. As a result, their intimate relationship with God was broken. For the first time, they felt ashamed and became fearful of him. Genesis 3 verse 8 declares that later, when they heard the sound of God walking in the garden, the man and his wife hid from God. But no one can really hide from God, for the Lord not only knew where Adam was, he knew also what Adam had done. As a result of their sin, they lost the life they had with God and were cast out of his presence. They became subject to death, and so death entered the world. Death in the scriptures is always seen as being twofold. There's physical death, when our bodies eventually wear out, and there's also spiritual death, in which our souls are separated from God for all eternity. 
Sin entered the world through one man, Adam, when he disobeyed God's command. But how does what he did affect his descendants? According to Jewish understanding, all of Abraham's descendants were still within his body at the time that he sinned, so they too would be participants in what he did. But Paul is very careful to say that this inherited or collective aspect isn't the whole story. He writes that death passed to all men because we all sin. We all make the same choices Adam did, and we all break God's commands. The point is this. The entire standing of earthly life was changed by Adam's disobedience, and all of his descendants share in the consequences of his sin, not just because we are all his descendants, but because we all sin just as he did. Paul will finish this comparison in verse 18, but before he does, he interjects something else in verses 13 to 14, perhaps to clear up a possible misunderstanding. Earlier, Paul had written that without the law there was no sin, but Adam sinned before the law of God was given to Moses. So how was sin reckoned before the law was ever given? Paul answers that even though there was a greater knowledge of sin after the law was given, people still rebelled against God and experienced death before then. There was some degree of knowledge of God's requirements since Adam certainly communicated what he knew of God to his descendants. And as Paul pointed out earlier, they had the law of God written on their hearts because they were all made in the image of God. They may not have known a specific command of the Lord that they were violating, as did Adam, but they nonetheless were under the rule of sin and death. Sin reigned over them. At the end of verse 14, Paul tells us that this one man, Adam, who affects so many because of his unrighteous actions, was actually a pattern of the one to come. Jesus, who Paul elsewhere calls the second Adam, would also have a life-changing effect on many. It was in a different garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, that Christ chose to obey the will of his Father rather than to reject it as Adam had, declaring, Not my will, but yours be done. The result of Christ's choice was very different to that of Adam, and Paul lays out the contrast beginning in verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, The gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? 
What a difference between Adam and Christ, between the trespass of the one and the gift of the other. The gift of reconciliation by God's grace is very different to the separation from God that came as the penalty for Adam's sin. For if mankind's separation from God was the result of one man's sin, how much more will the obedience of his one and only Son result in blessing for those who choose to stand in his grace and favour? To prove Christ's supremacy, Paul underscores the fact that because of Adam's one sin, judgment and condemnation was brought upon all people. However, because of Christ's obedience, many, many sins, in fact our many trespasses, can be forgiven. Through Christ's one act, we can be restored into relationship with God, just as if we'd never sinned. For if by the sin of Adam death ruled, how much more will life and relationship with God reign because of the Father's abundant kindness in Jesus Christ? But we must notice something key in what Paul states in verse 17. He declares, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? God's abundant provision of grace and his gift of righteousness is available to all. But just as it is with any gift, this gift has to be received by those to whom it is offered. To enjoy the grace and mercy of God, we have to accept or take hold of what God has offered in Jesus Christ, for all of God's blessing comes to us through Christ alone. Paul then finishes the comparison between Adam and Jesus in verse 18 and 19. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all people, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Because Adam chose to disobey God, sin and death are passed to all of his descendants. However, because Christ chose to obey God, righteousness and justification are now available to all who believe. For just as all men are born sinners and are separated from God, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness in Christ are blameless in God's sight because of Jesus. Then Paul says a very curious thing in verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
He reminds us that the law was given so that the knowledge of sin might increase. But in the remarkable kindness of God, his grace increased in even greater measure. Sin's reign is marked by death and separation from God, but the reign of God's grace brings righteousness and eternal life. Because of Jesus, we are no longer exiled from God's presence as Adam was. Immediately upon stating this, Paul is obviously concerned that his words might be misunderstood to mean that because of grace, people can live as they please and still be right with God. And so he continues in Romans chapter 6 verse 1. But what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul begins by asking a question that he plans to quickly answer here, and it's one we must really pay special attention to. For even today, there are those who teach that because salvation is a gift that's given by God's grace, then how we live really has no effect on our relationship with him. In fact, some might even think that sin could be seen as a good thing because it allows God's grace to overflow more and more. If this sounds familiar, it's the same argument Paul raised in chapter 3. It's okay to promote sin so that grace would appear more glorious. But according to Paul, this is by no means the case. Now that we're in Christ, he declares that we have a completely different relationship to sin. It no longer has a hold on us because we've died to it. How can we live any longer in something that we've died to? Now, to illustrate this, Paul immediately points to the symbolism found in believers' baptism. In Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, before ascending to heaven, Jesus gave his followers his final commands, which are known as the Great Commission. He instructed them, saying, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, according to Jesus, the first act of obedience in the life of a believer is to be that of baptism. According to Jesus, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a part of becoming his disciple, of believing in him. In those days, believers' baptism was done by immersion, where a person was entirely submerged under the surface of the water before being raised up again. And this was a beautiful outward picture of a spiritual reality that had already occurred in a believer's heart. And this symbol still holds true today. 
Paul states here in verse 4 that when those being baptized descended into the water and the water closed over them, it was as if their old self was being buried. And when they arose from the water, it was a symbol of their own resurrection. Baptism symbolized dying and rising again, and Paul says that it represents the fact that we have died to our old life of sin, only to be raised to a new way of living in Christ's holiness and in his power. He says in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, Now, we'll discuss this further in our next lesson, but it's vital for each of us to understand that coming to Christ does not mean that we are free to live as we please. We have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. We've died to sin and been raised to new life, a life set free from sin, a life dependent on his power. Paul will spend much of the rest of the letter talking about this new life we've been given, a life in which we are free to live in the fullness of his love and grace. May we be ready to receive and obey all that he has for us. May God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.